You are now listening to British Birds, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have a very special guest joining me for this interview episode. He spent three years as a police officer in the Metropolitan Police. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Matt Calvley. How are we doing? Yeah, good thanks. It was actually 30 years, not three years, but... Did I say three? I thought I said three decades. I wrote down, I'm going to leave that in, I wrote three decades as well. It serves me right for being an amateur. Three years, that'd be a good career, wouldn't it? Retired after three years. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Couldn't hack it. Couldn't hack it. So how did I say your surname right as well? I forgot to ask you, Calvley. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Perfect. I've had a few horror shows with guest surnames that I've had to leave on the cutting room floor, you see. Uh, well, most people can't spell it, but it's, it's it, the pronunciation is not a problem. There was a habit to put Calvary. Every time I, I wrote it down initially, I kept putting Calvary, and I was like, there's no there's no R in there. No R in it, yeah. <laughs> Before we get started, Matt, I just want to give you a bit of an icebreaker question. It's just a bit of fun I like to ask my guests. It's a different question each time. I just want to know, if you could instantly learn any skill, just click your fingers, you can learn it, matrix style, what skill would you learn? I'd probably want to learn a language, I think. I'm very bad at learning languages, but... To tried several times to learn Spanish, not much avail. So I think if I could snap my fingers and have any normal style, uh, human-type skill as opposed to a supernatural one, I'd be able to speak Spanish fluently, I think. You're a big fan of Spain? Um, I've been uh, many times, yes, and we're going again next month. Uh, so, yes, I do like um, Spain and Spanish culture. Probably get a few local discounts if you turned up speaking the lingo, I would have thought. Yep. Quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd learn a language. I think I might learn how to play guitar or something. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> Can you play guitar? Yeah, that's cool. Elect- it, yeah. Electric or acoustic? What's your tipple? Acoustic, classical yeah. mainly. Classical. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. I know these are both things that we both could do if we probably could be bothered or yeah, had the time yes. and patience. But <laughs> yeah. I like how we didn't go for something like flying or super intelligence We've kept it quite, you know, quite low key. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've done flying as well. I've got a pilot's license, but I'm not sort of. Really? <laughs> yeah. Not commercial or just private? Oh, no, no, just private, small, <laughs> single engine. Yeah. So do you own a plane then, or do you, do you have to lease one whenever you fancy a bit of a fly? Oh, I don't own one, no. I um, used to, I haven't flown for a, a couple of years now, but I used to lease one from Denham Aerodrome near where we lived and uh, just, yeah, fly around and take friends on jollies and, uh, that sort of thing. I never did commercial or bad weather or night flying or anything like that. Just it was just the <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, sunny day flying. How yes. did you get into that? Is that something you've always had an interest in? Yeah, I think uh, a friend of my dad's was a commercial pilot and he, he took me up for a lesson when I was about 13, 14 and I decided I really wanted to do that at some point but it took me until I was in my late 40s to be able to afford it. Yeah. So I uh, um, went ahead and did it and took me about uh, spread it out over about four or five years, just doing a bit here and there. Is there like a? Do you have a license then? Does that? How often does that need renewing? Yeah, it's the, the license is I think it's valid sort of indefinitely, um, but you need to maintain your uh, currency. So if I wanted to go and fly now, 
I would need to get an updated medical and then have a sort of a technical whiz around the block with an instructor to to revalidate my license. And after that, you're supposed to do, I think it's one hour a month to keep um, keep valid. What does the medical consist of? What are they are looking for? It's um, the, the class two medical, which is for private pilots, non-commercial. It's... Um, it's basically it's similar to a driving license medical. Um, they do a bit, a bit more in depth. They do um, ECG, quite an in depth eyesight uh, test, which is the first indication that I needed glasses about five years ago. <laughs> uh, and um, the older you are, the more often you get done. So if you're over fifty, you need an, an aviation medical every year. I think under that it lasts less than under fifty. It lasts two or three years. Okay. What did you actually want to be when you grew up, though? Was it a pilot or was it something else? I, I wanted to be a police officer. I've also had an interest in, in flying. I, I did. I, I would have liked to to have been a pilot earlier, but when I was a child, I wore glasses, which was a complete ban on flying at that time in the in the late seventies. So I sort of followed my ambition to be a police officer. Did you have any interactions with police officers? Were either of your parents in the force? Uh, no, no. My dad was a, a lawyer. My uncle. Uh, on his side was a chief superintendent, uh, but otherwise I have little uh, connection with the police. No real interaction with the police, apart from, as I've mentioned in my book, when I got chased by a police officer when I was about 14 years old, only for being in somebody's garden where I was trying to find a football, but the uh, uh, the police officer didn't catch me, fortunately. That's good. Got some speed to you. Mm. So what? when you were at school then, was there a certain point could have been after school, I suppose, where you thought that's the career I want to do. Did that affect what exams, what what subjects you chose, for example? No, not really. At uh, school, it was um, likely it was a sort of a pipe dream. I was quite um, quite, quite a frail child and quite an academic underachiever. Not really sure how my career was going to pan out. It was only as I got into my sort of late teens that I started to realise this this could actually be an achievable ambition. And then I applied for my local force, which was Lancashire. Uh, didn't succeed there because I was too young. You had to be 21, and I was only 19. So I applied to the Met, who were recruiting at the time. And I nearly didn't get in because I was underweight. Uh, they sent back my application form saying, we're just questioning your height and weight ratio. Can you go to your local police station and get this verified and certified? Because we're not sure about this. Right. I went to my local police station and um, saw this uh, this sergeant, a guy called Sergeant Steele, who looked at, measured my height, measured my weight, and said, "Well, you you're six foot three and you're ten stone six. You're, you're underweight." Wow. That's my that was my dream over until he said, uh, 10 stone six. Well, I better call it eleven stone six. <laughs> he wrote that down and sent that back, and then that um, that put me just across the line to be called for selection down in London. And then they remeasured my height and weight in London when I'd learned the knack of slightly bending my knees to make myself six foot one and not six foot not six foot three. Yeah. And then I, I by hook or by crook, I managed to clear that hurdle and and uh, and I passed selection. So is is there a specific reason why the height and weight matters? Is it as broad as the BMI, which can someone who's really tall and muscular could be overweight according to a BMI? So is it as broad as that, or are they looking for something in particular? It's all changed completely now that um, height and weight are much lower down the, the priority scale. You can't be discriminated against on your height and weight any more than you can 
be discriminated against for your age. Back uh, in, the, in the late 80s, when I was joining, you, there was a specific uh, minimum, maximum height. Not, actually, no, there was a maximum. It was definitely a minimum height. Hmm. And a, there was a graph with a height-to-weight ratio, which I think preceded BMI. Um, and you had to be in the right zone on the graph with your height proportional to your weight, regardless of whether you were made of fat or made of muscle. Okay. It was the proportion that counted. What was the minimum height? Can you remember? Um, I believe it was five foot ten for men. Oh, I'm in. Um, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I do recall. I'm not sure what it was for the men. I do recall the city of London used to have the the highest height requirement in the in the country, and their their minimum was six foot for men. Okay. And slightly different for women, but now that's that's all been dropped. Uh, yeah, there's a height and weight requirement anymore. It makes sense. What do you think the logic was? Obviously, it's a few decades ago. The culture and times have changed since then. But what do you think the logic was behind things such as that? I think you need to command a certain presence when you walk into a situation. I think if you're four foot ten and you try and walk into a pub fight with the best one in the world, you're going to struggle. Whereas if you're six foot three, especially if you're built like a rugby player, which I wasn't, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my colleagues were you can walk into a situation and just command it just by your presence and I think the the rationale back then was that uh, you needed to have that physical presence to be able to to deal with certainly with public order situations so once you'd got in did you start to develop your physique then uh, yes I did yeah the um there was a lot of focus on fitness the the first the, the 20 weeks I did at, at training school there's a lot of focus on fitness so several sessions every week in the gym as a, a two and a half mile run uh, about 6 a.m. twice a week. Ugh. A lot of it is carrying a uh, – that these runs were, were carrying a 60-kilo like log between two of you. And add to that the self-defense stuff and throwing each other around. Um, and, and, yes, I was getting as fit as a, as a robber's dog, as they say. So let's say you've completed your 20 weeks training, you join the force. Was it the usual sketch of two years on the beat, as they call it? Is that what your, your first sort of entry was into the force? Pretty much, yeah. You spend after training school, you go to a, you posted to your first police station, which in my case was Shepherd's Bush, and you spend ten weeks doing what they call a street duty course, which is um, basically being puppy walked by um, a, a senior PC, showing the local area, showing the where the villains are, basically how to transform from a training school recruit into a, a member of a response team, which you join uh, after, after if you pass the ten week course. And then the remaining of the two years, which is um, 15 months, you spend on probation when you're basically on response team. Oh, this, I should say this is all changed now. You know, yeah. <laughs> training school is, is, is no longer residential. The 10-week street duties course, I don't know what's happened to that. A lot of recruits, they, you can go straight into CRD, you can go straight to neighborhood policing. So the, the, the route I went, which was the only route available at the time, was the 10-week street duty course and then 15 months on probation and then you were confirmed in the rank after two years and then you could, well, was your oyster, you could apply to specialise. Do you remember your first day? On the beat? Yeah. Yes. Anything interesting happen? Yeah, within five minutes of walking <laughs> out. <laughs> I was walking out into Uxbridge Road in Shepherd's Bush. It was, a, it, was, it was June, it was a warm, sunny day and I'm getting used to people looking at me because you're wearing a uniform and everywhere you go, people are looking at you. Quite a new novel experience to me. And then within five minutes, uh, there's a lady comes towards us pushing a pram and she has two young kids walking alongside her, probably about four or five years old, six years old, a boy and a girl. And they looked at me, you know, so I put the friendly face of the London Bobby on and smiled and said, hello there. And they both looked at me and went, 
pig bastard. <laughs> and I was absolutely shocked. And um, oh. and the, the mum sort of looked at them all, sort of didn't even break stride. She looked at them kind of proudly and walked barreled on past us with this um, pram, you know, and walked past in the haze of cigarette smoke. And my um, sergeant I was walking with just looked at me and said, get used to it. Welcome to Shepherd's Bush. And right. uh, that's my first my first encounter with the public was being owned by a couple of toddlers. <laughs> Thrown in at the deep end, I suppose yeah. that's the best way. Was that quite commonplace then, especially in that area that the police were seen of as, as not necessarily a positive thing? It was, uh, it was both extremes in, in Shepherd's Bush. There was some law-abiding, lovely people lived there. And it also had its its hardcore of, of villainy. There was a, there was plenty of burglary, car crime, drug dealing, uh, some gang warfare, that sort of thing. Uh, it had a it was a, a real melting pot of everything. It's a very good place to start your career, to be honest. Was the one crime that was seen more commonly than others? It goes in fits and starts. There was you have a spate of lots of residential burglaries, you know, and then a few months later, be a spate of lots of cars being broken into. There was nothing. It's like it's not wasn't sort of notorious for one particular crime. It just had its its fair share in it came and went in phases. Forgive my naivety with geography, it's, it's not great, especially when it comes to London. But whereabouts is Shepherd's Bush in London? Um Shepherd's Bush is the W twelve postcode area. It's uh, it's in West London. It's sandwiched between uh, Hammersmith on the south, um Harlesden on the north, Acton to the west, and Notting Hill to the east. If you imagine London as a clock face, it's sort of roughly in this sort of nine o'clock position, but not on the outer edge by the M25, more sort of a bit more central than that. Okay. To, to about maybe four or five miles west of the West End. Is it quite an affluent area then, or is it one of these places that because there's so many affluent areas around it, I'm thinking places like Chelsea and stuff, is it a little bit under the radar? Yeah, it has, again, it has both. You go to the southwest uh, of the borough where it borders uh, Chiswick and Hammersmith, there are some uh, huge detached houses, multi-million pound houses. Uh, and then more centrally, you've got the White City Estate, which is very deprived uh, over by Notting Hill as the Edward Woods Estate, which is a similar London sink estate. Uh, so it depends which bit of the borough you're in, basically. So I was looking at your kind of profile on, I think I think there's like um there is a website that you're on. I don't know if it's possibly your agents that, that represent you. I forget the name of the website, but yeah. it was saying <laughs> there's a claim there that you've arrested over a thousand. Is is that something that you think is true, or is that a best guess? It's a best guess, but it's it, it's probably fairly accurate because I um, arrested um, around two hundred during my first during my probation during the first two years. Wow, and and probably about another seven or eight hundred over the rest of the twenty eight years, the following twenty eight years. So it's it, it's it's a ballpark figure, but it's it's not particularly impressive. It's not unusual. There was I work with officers who would arrest one or two people a day. Mm. You know, they'd, they'd they'd arrest a thousand people in 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 a couple in two or three years. Yeah, I suppose when you put it that way, it's a logical estimation. I suppose. Yeah. Was there then based on what you've said, figure wise, in your first couple of years, do you think you had more of an urgency to arrest people as to when you got a little more comfortable in the force, perhaps maybe wanting to impress your, your higher-ups? Absolutely, yeah, 100%. It, it's very driven by figures and performance. The, the supervisors know who's busy. They know who's out there nicking people and stopping cars and doing stop and search. And if 
if you want to progress, particularly if you want to be sent on expensive courses, such as driving courses, you need to be noticed for the right reasons. So that was my motivation during my early years. I, I really wanted to drive fast cars, and it's a very, very competitive process. Yes, I was out there being busy uh, and getting stuck in as much as possible. So with the car stuff, what sort of roles would you get if you went down that route? So let's say you get that you managed to go on the test, you've impressed your bosses, you get sent on the test, you pass the test. What would that change as far as your role is concerned? What would you be expected to do now that you have that qualification? Well, if, you, if you, there's various stages of driving courses, but if you get to the the top level, which is called the advanced driving course, uh, that entitles you to drive the, the high-performance cars uh, and engage in um, vehicle pursuits and uh, respond to the emergency calls, etc., um, that was my my first goal, and then once you get to that level, you then uh, when, when you are driving fast cars, you are more in the thick of the action. You're getting to the emergencies faster. If uh, one of your colleagues is trying to catch a car, you're the one who goes and chases it because you're you've got the qualification. Okay. Also, standing in good stead years down the line, I wanted to join the traffic patrol and focus on road deaths and motorway policing that sort of thing. And having that qualification under my belt already was a big help. I thought of a question that I've actually not asked any of the officers I've had on the show before, and it might not be something you want to answer, but I think every general public member has thought this. Is it true at rush hour when you sometimes hear a police car and the sirens are on, do they just want to get through traffic to get home? No. <laughs> okay. It's that they're... <laughs> To justify using um, your blue light and siren, especially if something goes wrong. Now, there, there can be some creative license in that. For example, if you are, certainly when I was training, I was taught, you know, if you get stuck in a traffic jam with no obvious reason, then there might be a problem. You need to get to the front and see if there's been an accident or an obstruction or something like that. Yeah. So there are some officers who every time they hit a traffic jam, was oh, we'd better go on better go <laughs> about. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's ways around it, but but yeah, you you need to. You're given certain exemptions from the Road Traffic Act and the authority to use blue lights and sirens, and you need to be able to justify it for each occasion. Is there any kind of audit when it comes to the car, like using the siren and stuff? I don't know how it would work. So there probably isn't, but like, does it say, oh, you switched on the siren this amount of times for this long, traffic wasn't bad? Is there anything like that, or is it just trust? Yeah, only in a reactive sense. Uh, I mean, the, it used to be until... About maybe 10 years ago, blue lights and sirens, there was no way of knowing how often they've been on. Uh, now each box has a, a, a data, re- each car has a data recorder, sorry, uh, which records all sorts of data, including use of blue lights and sirens. So if uh, you are either involved in a, in a collision or if a member of the public made an allegation you've been driving in a particular way, then uh, the traffic sergeant, which is what I was towards the end of my career, would plug the uh, the black box into a laptop, download the data, and would able to be able to see, well, on this, this occasion, at this particular time, you were doing twice the speed limit with your sirens and blue lights on. You weren't assigned to any emergency call. Mm. Uh, explain. And that's how people do get caught out. Because, as you said, although I gave you a blanket no to the question, do they use blue lights and two-tones to get to the, get through traffic? There are, there are rogues in every bunch, you know, and I'm sure it has happened. Generally speaking, you know, if you want to take that risk, that's that's on you. That's on you. And if something goes wrong, uh, you have to justify it, and that can be difficult if you have no justification. Yeah, I can imagine. It's good that they have that. 
At what point did, when you started, I'm imagining that they didn't have body cams as standard. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah. At what point was that introduced? After I'd retired. Uh, I never <laughs> had a camera, so uh, round about they were coming in round about sort of 2016, 2015, I think, and they seemed to be a a bit of a, a big win for the police, in that malicious complaints seem to have dropped since body cams were introduced. Most officers are very much in favour of them, but I never wore one myself because they weren't around when I when I was serving. You might not know then if that's the case, but with wearing things such as a body cam is there do you have to say to whoever you approach you're being recorded or is that just a given because i'm thinking can it be used as evidence if the person being recorded isn't aware i guess is my logic but they should be because it's right in the face yeah i I don't honestly know the answer to that i'm sure there will be protocols but i I don't know what they are i would have thought so because you never when you do see the clips that you never really hear them say i'm recording by the way you know, like someone would with a phone. Perhaps so, it's not necessary. Yeah, they probably don't have to. So let's have a look at what else you did in your career. So it said you served as a custody sergeant. Yeah. What does that mean? Is that to do with people that get arrested? What's what's that yeah, about? Yeah, people get arrested, uh, basically, when somebody gets arrested and the police officer drags them into the police station, they present them to the custody sergeant okay. and explain why they've been arrested. And as the custody sergeant, you're role is to listen to the grounds for the arrest and if you agree it's justified then you authorize the detention in a cell of this uh, this person and then you you're responsible for their welfare while while they're there make sure they uh, are looked after sufficiently uh, they have whatever necessary processes they need such as fingerprints and dna samples taken if they want a solicitor you get a solicitor if they're a juvenile you get them an adult or a social worker it's basically managing the custody suite and making sure that everyone who's been arrested is is being held lawfully and uh, that their the police and criminal evidence act is being complied with in each in each respect. Are there any that stick out as being unusual or more serious than some of the petty crimes you might have come across? Oh, there's, there's a few. Yes, I mean the one of the very first ones I had was a a girl who was about 14 years old who had been brought in for um, stealing shoplifting. She was quite clearly inebriated, so we called called Mum to come into the station, uh, and I was tried to handle Mum with kid gloves because I'm aware this can be a big shock having a child arrested. And uh, Mum got right in my face, and the first thing she said to me was, "You know she's pregnant, don't you?" So I said, "No, all I know is that she's 14 years old, drunk, bunking off school, and robbing shops." And uh, her Mum's like, "Well, if anything happens to her or that baby, I'll have your job." I thought, mm, "Yeah, you won't." <laughs> And so, and, and as mum's parting shot, when she, when she'd finished, we finished the interview and mum was leaving the station as a parting shot, she slammed a pack of 20 Benson hedges on the desk in front of me and said, make sure you give her these. Really? And thought this, this child has little chance in life, really. That's so sad. Another one that sticks in my mind was a, there was a, a road rage incident between two cars one night. That was the custody sergeant and I could hear this going on, on the radio it ended with a catastrophic crash. The one driver was arrested for drink driving. He was brought before me. The other car contained three teenagers who were very in a very bad way. So this uh, guy was uh, being booked in. He'd been arrested for drink driving following this crash. He was extremely arrogant, confrontational. And then I get a message through my terminal. It says two out of the three teenagers in the other car have, have died. Oh. And it's, it forced me to 
brakeman used to this driver that the crash he's been involved in has resulted in two fatalities. So I told him as gently as I could, and his response was, so who's going to fix my bumper? Jesus. So anyway, I sent him off to have his fingerprints and DNA taken, having taken a deep breath. And at the back of the room was a, a duty solicitor who was watching this with interest. And he came to see me and said, Sergeant, I know that he said he doesn't want a lawyer, but given that this is now very serious, do you want me to have a word with him anyway? So I sort of said, yeah, be my guest if you want. Mm. So the solicitor went into the fingerprint room to speak to this, this drink driver. And he came out two minutes later with his face red with rage. And he said, I spend any more time in there with him, I'll kill him myself. God. And then he ended up, um, the, the, this, this drink driver ended up going to prison for about six years, for causing death by dangerous driving whilst drunk. Um, but at no time did he show any remorse, any kind of repentance. It was all somebody else's fault. This, these teenagers shouldn't have mixed it up with him as far as he was concerned. The fact that he was drunk was neither here nor there. And you look at him thinking, how can anybody become this soulless, arrogant person that doesn't care that he's just killed two teenagers? He's more concerned about a scratch on his bumper. That's unbelievable. Mm. You see the very, very worst of humanity, definitely. It must be hard to... Like that solicitor comes out fuming. It must be hard to keep you cool in that situation. Surprisingly, no. Uh, the reason is somebody who's committed something very, very serious is going to hopefully go to court, be prosecuted, go to court, um, go to prison for a long time. If there's any way along the journey that their entitlements or rights have been breached, or they've not been given something that they should have had access, like access to a lawyer or um, have somebody informed, et cetera, et cetera, it puts the prosecution in jeopardy. I would never want to be the one responsible for stepping outside the lines and jeopardising the prosecution. So when somebody who's like that, who's done something extremely serious and is one of, in my opinion, the worst scum of the earth, I would play straight down the line to make sure that Nothing would come back on me as having breached any procedures, anything to do with to do with his rights, anything like that. So it's surprisingly easy. Yeah, I mean, by the sounds of it, you ran a tight ship, very professional. And based on that, you have a lot of faith in the system. My next question is probably what you might expect. Have there been any times where you've not personally been let down, but you've thought that someone has perhaps been given a lenient sentence or got away with something when they perhaps shouldn't when it got to trial stage? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's and, and usually you have to just shrug it off because that happens, unfortunately. And, and there's one particular incident where I caught a burglar red-handed. He was he was actually rifling a house when I turned up. We had a chase across some back gardens and eventually cornered him. We had an almighty fight and he managed to gouge into my face, in my hands, with in my arms with his fingernails. He eventually managed to overpower him. But I've, I've actually, in, in my book, there's actually photographs of my injuries in the middle. And he went to court for burglary, for assault, assaulting a police officer. But the court didn't, the Crown Prosecution Service didn't tell me of the court date. So this guy turned up at court and the prosecutor was unable to proceed because I wasn't there because they had told me to go. So rather than ask for an adjournment, uh, they offered no evidence, which basically means dropping the case. Mm. And this guy was acquitted. And I had to go and tell this burglary victim, not only have you, as have I, been denied justice for my injuries but you've been denied justice for the burglary and we went started off down the road of appealing this decision to see if there's any way we could resurrect the prosecution because this was an absolutely reprehensible decision by the prosecutor but before we could make any headway the burglar was was killed in a car crash two weeks later he was in a stolen car with 
six mates, and he crashed and was killed. I considered that closure, so that was the end of the matter. You could say, was that karma? Well, it's a bit harsh that he caused me some minor injuries and he ends up paying with his life. Mm. But there's been plenty of other examples where either the prosecution mess up or you have a seamless prosecution and then the court gives a, a very lenient sentence. One case that took me three months to crack, which involved the death of a six-year-old child, eventually got this guy convicted at court and he was jailed for just under four years. And I'm thinking, really? Four years for taking the life of a six-year-old? But there's nothing you can do about it. It's the, 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 This is the, the justice system and you have to roll with it. Yeah, it can be frustrating sometimes, I imagine. You'll read stuff even if you're reading articles online and you'll think, how long? Is that it? Yes, absolutely. What's the worst injury you've received? Was it the, the sort of face gouging or is the worst ones in that? The worst one I would think was where I nearly lost my left thumb because I got attacked by an escaped monkey. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, sorry. It's just funny to hear. It is funny. It is funny. <laughs> don't worry. This was a Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, and Scotland Yard called us on the radio to direct us to a house in Shepherd's Bush where the occupier reports that a monkey has climbed in through the kitchen window. Initially, my colleague and I rejected this call because this, now this is a Sunday morning wind-up. This is not a real call. Yeah. But Scotland Yard insisted, so we went down and this woman shows into the house and sure enough, there's this uh, fluorescent yellow and green monkey sitting on the worktop, uh, about two feet long with about the uh, same length of tail. And I'm sort of completely gobsmacked. I said, where, where did that come from? And she said, it was just climbed through the window. It's obviously domesticated. It's tame, you know. Mm. So I tentatively approached it and it was tame. It was, it was playing with my fingers with its little hand and then it jumped on my hand and ran up my arm, sat on my shoulder. So... This is the most surreal situation. I'm a you know, police officer in full uniform in a house in Shepherd's Bush with a monkey sat on my shoulder. Um, my colleague has gone outside to phone, uh, well, to make calls, get calls made to the RSPCA, um, London Zoo, anybody else we can think of, to find out what to do with this creature. And then the, uh, this lady's husband came into the, ha- into the kitchen carrying a large cardboard box and said, well, let's put it in here till we know what to do with it. The monkey had other ideas. I went to take it off my shoulder and it just literally clamped its teeth right through my left thumb. I I grabbed it around the neck and pulled it away and dropped the monkey to the floor and it just went blood spurting everywhere. And then everything went black. And then the next thing I remember, I I could hear a siren and I woke up and I was sprawled across the backseat of the police car while my colleague was racing me to the hospital. A kitchen roll wrapped around my hand and uh, went, went to Hammersmith Hospital and they basically sewed my thumb back together. And it was um, over a year before I got full use of it back again, but I did get full use of it back. I still have the scar. It turned out the monkey was a domestic pet that had escaped from a few doors away and gone the garden hopping. Now, a lot of people have read this story in my book, and they're reading it thinking it's completely improbable and it's probably just a made-up story. Uh, until you get to the middle of the book in the photo section, and there's the original press cutting from the Hammersmith Gazette about the incident, which was leaked to them. So 30 years in the Met facing um, guns and knives and violent people, and the worst injury was from an escape monkey. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Did it have any, because I'd be worried about infections, did it did have to have any jabs or anything? Yeah, the, just the usual tetanus, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, you mean me on the monkey? Sorry, <laughs> I did mean you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just use just a, a tetanus shot. Yeah, I thought you were going to say. Then, in the middle of the book, there was a picture of your thumb 
in the worst state it could possibly be rather than a newspaper article no i didn't get that photographed at the time which is a bit of a regret um and i mean i I, I still carry the scar a little bit but uh, no at the time i didn't get the injury the injury photographed i did read only the headline i guess of this story squirrel monkey called clive is that right i say clive my friend (laughs) have you been in touch with clive since no i haven't no i don't think we shared a great friendship to be honest no, well, stay safe, Clive, if you're listening. Hmm. I did read another story as well that you were arrested like sort of a bad Santa character yes. on one occasion. What's that story? Well, that was um, Christmas Eve 1997, I think. I was patrolling um, Harrow night shift with my colleague. This is the days before um, we had data terminals and camera number plate readers in cars, you know, and my colleague, who was a very, very keen probationer, used to have a list on the dash, taped to the dashboard in front of him all of all the hot cars, all the stolen cars, ones used in burglary, etc. So we're patrolling down um, Old Reading, which is a sort of semi-rural road in Harrow, and um, a stretch limousine went past in the opposite direction with a guy dressed as Santa Claus driving it. And my colleague suddenly shouted out, that, that limo's stolen, it's on the list. So I spun around, we went after this limo and put the blue lights on, and Santa didn't want to stop. And we end up having about a half hour chase with him around the Harrow, Watford, Oxy, Bushy, all points in between. Eventually, he lost control of the limousine. This is one of those big stretch limousines you see at hen parties, that sort of thing, a very yeah. large vehicle. He lost control on the roundabout, slid off the road, and stalled the engine. So my partner jumped out of the car to try and drag Santa out of the driver's seat and arrest him. But Santa got the car started again and started to drive off with my colleague hanging out the driver's door. Uh, this is a terribly dangerous situation where police officers have been killed before in this situation, hanging onto a speeding car. Um, so I use a tactic which was illegal at the time, was now legal, fortunately, and um, rammed the limo with the police car, just rammed it into the back door, forced it off the road. And this gave my colleague the, the opportunity to grab the ignition keys and drag Santa out and arrest him. And that was that, basically. And... When this, this guy, Santa Claus, was interviewed, and he was a well-known local, local car thief who had this money-making brainwave. Of, he broke into a, a prestige car showroom, into the office, stole the keys to this limousine, stole the limousine off the forecourt, and then drove around London on Christmas Eve dressed as Santa Claus, touting as a novelty minicab. And at the time he arrested him, he'd, he'd made £400 in two hours. What the hell? It was a fairly lucrative uh, little trade he was in. Uh, but the the funniest part of the story, which I heard about but I wasn't privy to, was that he was, he was charged and he was remanded in custody and he was taken to Wormwood Scrubs Prison on Boxing Day on remand, still dressed as Santa Claus. And I would just love to be a fly on the wall when the you know, prison van pulls up at prison at Christmas time and Santa Claus gets out. <laughs> he, ended up, um, he ended up serving eight months in prison for the burglary and the dangerous driving. Oh, God. It's just such a flawed plan, isn't it? Everything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it worked for a couple of hours, but he was never going to get away with it for long, really. He was too, he was too um, conspicuous. Yeah, just a bit, just a bit. It says as well that you, you qualified as a mass fatality specialist. What made you pursue that? In the, particularly in the aftermath of the 7 7 bombings um, in London, which four terrorists killed 52 private citizens on trains and a bus. The Met wanted to recruit more what they call DVI officers, disaster victim identification officers, 
the role of the DVI officer is you, you have a normal day-to-day policing job, but if there's a mass fatality incident such as 7-7, you're then the one who goes in the forensic suit to recover the bodies, the body parts, you set up temporary mortuary, you, you form a team with a pathologist and a photographer and carry out post-mortem, you identify the victim, you recover bomb and bullet fragments for forensics, etc. And this was something I've been at the time this happened. I'd been a, a fatal accident investigator for a while, and I, and I thought this was something I could, I could get stuck into. It's something that was that would suit me. So I applied in the aftermath of seven seven. The Met wanted ten sergeants and fifty constables to go on the list on the call out list, and they had over three thousand applications. Uh, so I was fortunate to be one of the ten sergeants chosen. Underwent the training, there's foundation and then advanced DVI training, which was some of the best training I've ever done in the police. It was thoroughly interesting. Um, we did case studies of the uh, Boxing Day tsunami in Sumatra, I think, and the Paddington Rail crash. Uh, we did set up mock major incidents, mock mortuaries. We learned how to recover bodies, body parts, keeping dignity for the victim while maintaining a, a timely acceleration of the case to identify suspects. And having completed the training, I was then placed on a call-out list where I, I sat for 10 years without being used. Although I did go fairly regularly to refresher training and refresher incidents. And then six months before I retired, in it was June of 2015, I think, June or July, summer anyway, 2015, I was off duty at a, a hotel in Birmingham where my wife was attending a conference. I'd just taken time off to go with her. And the phone rang and it was Scotland Yard saying, you better grab your DVI kit and get ready for deployment. So I said, why? What's happened? And I said, look, check Sky News. I've, I've got loads more phone calls to make. Just look at the news. Hmm. Logged into Sky News and it was um, Tunisia. It was an uh, Islamic State terrorist had walked down the beach in Sousse armed with a assault rifle hidden inside a parasol and had slaughtered, I think it was 38 tourists, of which 30 were UK citizens. So the deployment to Tunisia was already covered by the the permanent staff. So my role was to be the mortuary team leader at Fulham Mortuary. So two, three days later, having hastily kitted up and had a briefing, I found myself at Fulham Mortuary waiting for a succession of 30 purses to come in from Bryce Norton, bringing all these bodies. And it was um, quite a surreal feeling that having done months and months of training, and then you're faced with your first body bag and you know that inside that body bag, you really are going to find a slaughtered human being full mm. of bullet holes. Um, it's quite a, quite a, nothing can really prepare you for it because most police officers have dealt with injuries caused by handguns, shotguns, maybe knives, but very, very few have seen high velocity rifle round injuries and the power and the devastation is absolutely unbelievable the amount of damage one bullet can do to a human body. But we cracked on, and uh, in a week, I think we did all 30 post-mortems. We recovered all the bullets and fragments. The forensic odontologists had taken all their dental impressions and identified all the victims, um, and they were all ready to be returned to the families for funerals. So that was uh, having been on the call-out list for 10 years. It finally happened just before I retired. It seems like the sort of extracurricular job for better use of a term that you've trained for, but you almost kind of don't want to be called out for because it's such devastation. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want, you never want this sort of thing to happen, but um, it was the same in my role as a fatal accident investigator. You never want fatal accidents to happen, but if they do and they do, 
you want to be there. You want to be the one dealing with it in, in the thick of it. And it's the same with the DVI. You know, I wouldn't want to be if if a terrorist attack happened or a mass, another mass fatality incident like um, Grenfell Tower as an example. I wouldn't want to be the one in charge of just cordon security or that sort of thing or something peripheral. I wanted to be in the thick of the action, and that's why I applied for DVI. And when it happened, just before retirement, I was fortunate to actually put it into practice. What effect, if any, has working on that Tunisia attack had on your mental health more than anything? Um, none, really, to be honest. I've become very hardened to, to death. I, was, I found I was quite good at dealing with dead people, um, not so good at dealing with dying Hmm. I've had a couple of, I think, five occasions where I've tried to stop somebody dying and failed, and that has quite a that can have quite a lasting effect when you you know you somebody's taken their last breath and you've tried to save them and you, you haven't succeeded. For me, I tried five times and I failed five times, so it's not an exactly a, a good hit rate of um, emergency life support. But actual dealing with death on the DVI course, the the instructor told us that when somebody dies. You have to think of it as they, they cease to become a person and they become evidence, okay. they become an object. And it's quite a callous way of thinking about it, but it is the only way to think about it if you want to maintain your sanity. It's kind of the same mentality you apply when you're a custody sergeant. So you want to make sure that everything's right for mm-hmm. the trial so nothing comes back on you. It's yeah. just a lot more morbid because you're actually dealing with, in that case, brutalized yeah. bodies of 30 people. Yes. Absolutely. I don't think I could do it. I don't think Not I could. Not for everyone. <laughs> yeah. For everyone. Yeah. There must be a point where you think, because you've probably seen your fair share of people that think they're going to make it and then they just can't hack it. Mm. Was there a certain turning point, whether it was perhaps the first body that you saw or the first call out you had for you know a serious crime like that, where you thought, I think I'm in the right job here? Yes, um, probably. I mean, there's, there was two of the first bodies I dealt with, which were both very, very badly disrupted. There were the first one was um, an old chap who'd had a heart attack on his. He'd been up on his roof fixing a tile, even though he was in his sort of late seventies. He'd had a heart attack and had toppled backwards, fallen two floors onto his head. Oh. Uh, now, although he was almost certainly dead before he hit the ground because of this massive heart attack, his injuries were absolutely catastrophic. I mean, if you to put it in, well, there's no real way of sugarcoating it, basically. His um, his spine had come out the top of his skull. Imagine a, a pickled onion being pushed down a cocktail stick, like at a party. It was that kind of effect, the skull and the, and the spine. So that was the one of the very first sudden deaths I dealt with. And I, it exposed a bit of a gap in the, in the system because the ambulance turned up, but it wasn't for them because he was dead. I turned up to report the details and you know, sort of deal with the widow and make sure that next of kin were coming as well, you know. Undertakers turned up to remove the body, and what was left was a scene of carnage on the, this lady's patio where there was still blood and brain and bone spread around the place. It was nobody's job to clean that up. The undertakers just took the main body. The paramedics wouldn't deal because it was a death. So I decided I would deal with it. So I got the garden hose out and I washed all this blood and brain and body tissue off the patio and onto the flower beds dug it in a little bit. I'm no gardening expert, but I can't imagine it would do any harm, and it didn't seem right to let this old lady have to clear it up herself. Mm. So that seemed the right thing to do, and I got over that, thought no more of it, until a year year later, and there was an article appeared in the local gazette about a, a sprightly 
local widow who'd been tending a garden and had dug up a set of false teeth. Now I recognised the name and I thought that that's that's her. And I thought, oh my god, I must have washed this guy's false teeth into the garden and dug them in. And obviously they wouldn't decompose. So I, nothing else came of that. But it start it, it did make me think about. It, it, I probably should have been a little bit more meticulous when I was cleaning up this mess and you know, maybe uh, not left an unpleasant surprise for her to dig up a year later. Goodness me! I assume they have people that do that job specifically now, clean up teams. If it's um, a suspicious death, a murder, or something like that, then there will be forensics teams doing everything. But if it's an, uh, just a, a no-fault, sudden death, heart attack, and it's on private property, then I don't know is the short answer. If it's in the street and the local authority have a responsibility to clear up, it's in private property. I, there certainly wasn't at the time, and I don't know if that's changed. Something you never really think of, is it, I suppose? Because if there is blood smears or whatever there might be on your path, like you say, everyone does their job and it's not really in anyone's description to play the clean-up person. Yeah, so which is why I made, I made it my job. Yeah. Because it didn't seem right just to leave leave this old widow to do it. Jeez. Hell of a shock for her, poor thing. Indeed, yeah. Well, you live and learn, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> yes, right. So we might as well come on to your book. We've been talking briefly, the couple of stories you mentioned in there. It's called Cops and uh, Horrors, beg your pardon, Cops and Horrors. I was going to say robbers then. <laughs> I guess that's a play on words. Wrong, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Cops and Horrors. So this came out uh, April 14th last year, 2022, and yeah. it's published by Mirror Books. That's right, isn't it? Correct, yes. Mirror Books. How did that come about then? How did the whole, do you know what? I'm retired now. I think I should uh, tell a few of my stories. Well, it was a combination of, um, of factors. Um, firstly, ever, ever since um, I've always been a bit of a storyteller in the police, especially when I would, when my kids were young, I'd come home from work and they'd be like, you know, tell us a story, daddy, you know, and uh, I would tell them some sanitized versions, age <laughs> appropriate versions. And um, I, I sort of didn't realize how much I was doing this. And then three years after I'd retired, my wife and I'd be on holiday to Cuba and we we're on a plane on the way back over the Atlantic. and I for some reason, told her another story. And she sort of said to me, you, you really should write these down. You've got so many of them, just start, just write them down. So she started me thinking, so I started writing them down. And when the number of stories reached sort of two, three hundred, um, I figured there may be a book in it. So I sent a freedom of information request to the Met asking for my service record, which they very kindly sent me, a big bundle of all my training record, injuries on duty, commendations, everything, basically, which helped me put together a timeline, particularly as regards injuries. Uh, and then I wrote this book during lockdown, uh, during COVID, and then started touting it around literary agents. And then eventually Andrew Lowney in London took me on. He partnered me with uh, a ghostwriter called Nicholas Stowe, who's um, she's a award-nominated. She's done various bestsellers and magazine articles and columns and stuff. Uh, and then we, we put the book together, and we submitted it back to Andrew. He started touting it around publishers. And then um, Mirror were interested in um, Mirror Books, basically um, bought the publishing rights from us. And we went through uh, quite an extensive tweaking and editing process. Um, they had it looked at by their lawyers, who I was quite pleased because the lawyers only came back with one tweak, which is um, a small oversight on my part when I'd, I'd written something that could possibly identify a, a real victim. I'd use false names for everybody, but this one had slipped through the net. So apart from that, the lawyers were happy with it. In fact, they described it as a fantastic read, uh, which cool. is praise indeed from a firm of lawyers. 
<laughs> and then, um, yeah, it was published in, uh, in as you said, in, in April last year, and it's it's been available on um, usual outlets, Amazon, um, Smiths, Waterstones, mm-hmm. uh, Bureau Books website, plenty of other places, and find out hopefully the next few weeks how well it's doing. I, I have no idea at the moment. Is that do they normally leave it a certain length of time before they decide if it's done well or? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be end of December, but there was a bit of slippage. So mm. sometime in January, I'll find out how the sales are going. So let's so say it's doing really well. Did you withhold some stories for a potential sequel? Yes. Um, I, in, I have a total of 350 stories. There's only 140 in this book. Mm-hmm. So I have plenty of material for a potential sequel. It would be a challenge to write a sequel because we couldn't make it chronological. It would have to sit alongside yeah. Mm-hmm. The original, because it's the same thirty years. Yeah, uh, but it could be done. But it would need the presumably the book would need to be a certain level of success before the publishers would want to commission a sequel. So uh, it could happen, and if it does, I've got the material waiting to be um, transformed into a book. Yeah, no, that's good. I was going to ask you, but since you've retired, was it twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen? I think you said that. Yeah, twenty sixteen. Yeah, twenty sixteen. So, what have you been doing since then? You've done the book, which came about in twenty twenty two. So, there's a bit of a gap there, year or two to write it. Let's say, just guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you doing with yourself these days? What do you do with your spare time? What do you do for work? Do you do anything? Yeah, I mean, uh, work wise, I'm a I'm a local handyman, part time handyman. Mm-hmm. Another conversation I had with my wife when I retired. My wife and I done some property developing. Over the years, um, she's got a, a wide range of artistic skills, and I've got wide, a wide range of DIY skills. And I said, "So, what am I, what am I going to do when I retire? I'm only 51. I can't sort of just go to the pipe and slippers brigade." <laughs> and she said, "Well, you, you know, you, you, you've you've always been a bit of a geek. Become a handyman." <laughs> so, <laughs> a lovely words with the wife there. So I did. So I, uh, I set up as a local handyman, and it's reached the point now where I I, I don't advertise anywhere. I have enough. Uh, repeat business and word of mouth. Oh, cool. We're going a few days a week, and outside of that, we live in the in a, an AONB area about standing natural beauty. So we do a lot of walking. Um, I play mm. tennis at a local tennis club, and we'll hopefully starting next month get back into travelling a bit, which we haven't done since pre-COVID. So um, that kind of feel, seems to fill my time. Is there any part of you that misses the drama of being a cop? Not really, no, for, for three reasons. Firstly, that my master plan was always to sign up for the 30 years and then retire, which is what I did almost to the day. For the pension, is that? Yeah, for the pension, yeah. <laughs> and the, which is, the pension is the second reason. Um, back in, I think, 2014 or thereabouts, the Home Secretary, uh, Theresa May, was tinkering with police pensions and taking an axe to them. And Although I was, because of my age, I think I was over 45, therefore my pension was ring-fenced. There's absolutely no guarantee if I'd stayed serving that the pension would continue to be safe. And the third and most pertinent reason to retire was I got away with it for 30 years. I was quite, um, particularly as regards my own safety, I was quite quite reckless at times. I took some risks with uh, in regards driving or taking on suspects, that sort of thing. And every single time, 100%, I got away with it and survived to tell the tale. Now, if I'd stayed serving, sooner or later, I think my number would have come up, either in terms of getting seriously injured or making a huge catastrophic driving mistake and getting prosecuted. Yeah, so I figured that all everything pointed towards walking out the door on the dot of 30 years, which is which is what I did. And so, no, no regrets, especially reading about the, the state the Met has become now. It's the Met is absolutely on its knees with 
various scandals, a combination of, I mean, there's lots of reasons why, but if you could fix one thing, it would be the vetting. The wrong people are being recruited and the wrong people are being allowed to stay in the police. But that's all down to budget cuts. Civilian vetters were made redundant. And it's not the service that I joined. Definitely not. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's in a crisis. So I'm quite, quite glad I'm out in many ways. But I have no regrets. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my three decades. Oh, that's good to hear. Is there anything you wish you would have known at the start, though? So say you could go back in time now and tell yourself as a new recruit, one thing, would you give yourself any advice or would you just say, no, just let it play out, you'll be fine? I think the what I tried to do was never to take the work home with me, always to switch off at the end of a shift. And to a large degree, I succeeded in that. And then having seen um, a big rise in, in mental health problems amongst police officers in particular, maybe it's just talked about more, I think when I joined, I would have emphasised that it's really, really important to switch off and not to take stuff home with you and not to get mentally involved with too many of the cases, you know. And there are people who live and breathe particular cases and can't switch off, and I managed in the last to avoid doing that and end up retiring after 30 years relatively stress-free, I think. So if I could roll back the clock 30 years, uh, I would just emphasise that point switch off end of each shift you know and start a new one next time would that be the same answer if i asked what advice you would give to someone else who was just about to start their career with the police i think so yeah i think that it would be along the lines of when it's good the job is absolutely fantastic you'll never find a better job when it's bad you're still going home and getting paid so just shrug off the bad days and learn from them i like it good advice for life i think that Mm, yeah i guess so yeah Good days, bad days. But yeah, so I really appreciate you coming on, Matt. It's been fascinating listening to your stories. Is there anything in the pipeline you've got as far as, I know we're waiting to hear back on the figures for the book and stuff and a potentially a sequel. Is there anything else, anywhere people, you want me to point them to find you or do you like to just keep to yourself? <laughs> well, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, you know, which I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a massive social media user, you know, and I'm on, on Twitter commenting very occasionally. There is a, a YouTube video about the book, if people are interested, it's which mm-hmm. is if you've got the time to kill because it's nearly four hours long. <laughs> um, sorry, no, I, I, I tell a lie. The interview was nearly four hours long. The edited version is just over three hours, but still a fair old hit. Yeah, As a guy called uh, Sean Atwood, mm-hmm. who does a true crime channel. Yeah, um, and he um, asked to interview me in person um, middle of last year, so we did this very long interview, and that's that's on YouTube. If 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 people want to get a um, a long feel for the for the book. What's he, he goes through the book in um, chapter by chapter, and okay, or they could just buy it from Amazon, yeah, yeah. Amazon or um, or one of the other outlets. Let's go for that first. I'll put a link in. Buy the book and then watch Sean Atwood's long video yeah, with absolutely, Matt. Absolutely, yes, that's the correct way around to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you, everyone, as well for listening. And until next time, as we always say, cheerio. 